We have a nursery. We have a nursery. We have a nursery. Yes, we do. We have nursery workers walking out. So that's okay. Take your time. Uh, three and under, I think, are the age limits that they always tell me. Am I correct on that? Three and under. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, Well, they're getting out, and I'm getting situated. I encourage you guys, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be not going to be bouncing as much today as we have in, in previous weeks, but um, uh, I do want to uh, start off in, um, probably start off in Luke chapter 14, but our main text is going to be in Isaiah chapter uh, 61, so um, however you want to adjust your uh, trip through Scripture, that'd be fine. Um, For me, I'm probably just going to open up to Isaiah. So, sometimes I know I share a little bit about uh, how the Lord has led me this week to prepare a message, and uh, sometimes I don't. Um, I can tell you this, that this week was a difficult week. Uh, God was uh, really pushing me in a direction that I didn't want to go, and um, it was really kind of irritating because I had a plan. Um, and I want to stick that plan, and, and he kept saying, no, you're not going to do that, and I said, yes, I am, and he says, no, you're not. So I guess this morning, no, I'm not. I'm going to do his plan, um, but it's just, it's one of those frustrating things, and, and to be honest with you, in light of, uh, you know, our recent family events and the tragedies that have happened with us, um, you know, I didn't, I haven't really felt like doing this, and it's nice when you have a plan, right, when I have notes and I have preparation, things that I've already done, and I could just sit back and rest comfortably in those plans, because then I don't have to stretch out, I don't have to, to, to go into me much, because I already have the plan, and so I know last Sunday was tough, and I'll be honest, I didn't really want to preach, um, but I know God wanted me to. And I, those of you that normally see me wandering the halls in between uh, when you guys get here in Sunday school and the music worship, you'll probably notice I was a bit absent last week. And I'll be honest, I hid in my office until I figured there wouldn't be anyone in the hallway because I'm really having a hard time. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm preaching about superhuman, super natural love, supernatural unity, supernatural family, supernatural body that, that, that we are a part of and as the body of Christ. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the plan that I was going. It's a plan that I had long before the tragedies happened. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is the direction I need to go. I already have the notes. I already have the Bible verses. I already have it lined out. This is where you want me to go because this is the direction I need to go, God. And then God says to me, if the body is hurting and you're not letting if a part of the body's hurting, and you're that part that's hurting, and you're not letting the congregation, who is part of the body as well, recognize and see that you're hurting, then you are in sin. And that hurt me. And then I just had to have a fight. It was just God and I, you know, just a knockdown, drag out. That was my river jabbock moment, you know. And I was sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, this is where it's going to be, God. We're going to come to fisticuffs over this, right? And he's just looking at me, he's like, well, you can call what you want, but you're not going to win. Okay. And so we really wrestled hard this week. And um, the Lord kept telling me over and over again that we're part of the body, right? And when one part is hurting, all of us hurt. And when one part needs healing, all of us need healing. That's right. And then I asked myself, well, God, what do you want me to do? 
And it's amazing how the Lord just brought me through this place. And I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm far from where I want to be. I'm far from coming through this kind of tragedy. But I know that God is bringing me closer to it. And the one thing that keeps coming back to me again, over and over again is that I ask him, I say, God, how can I deal with this, right? How can I move forward? And he says, how do you, th-? and he, he turns around. Because that's what Jesus does, Mike. He likes to ask, answer questions with questions. And it makes me mad. You know, I just want to clear, straightforward, go left right here, right? No. He just says, well, what do you think you should do? That's what, that's the, what I'm getting this. What do you think you should do? And I said, I don't know. And he says, well, I've given you everything you need to know in my word. Open it and find out. Okay, God. And so I did. And I began to search. And I go where my journey always takes me when I'm going through these kinds of tragedies or struggles or trials. I go to my, the apostle of, of misery and suffering and turmoil, the apostle that, that, that walked from tragedy to tragedy to tragedy all the way to the point where they cut his head off at the end. And I said, well, who is that? Paul. That was Paul's life, from tragedy to tragedy, trial to trial. And it's interesting when Paul starts to lay out his feelings. I'm going to read to you from the book of Philippians, chapter 4. I didn't tell you that one, but I'm going to tell you that one now. If you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I felt at the time that this was um, more close to what I was uh, uh, wanting to bring out. Here's Paul discussing this, right? Paul was in prison writing these words to his disciples, his followers, if you will, in Philippi. He's writing to them as he's sitting there in prison for the faith. And he says this in verse 10, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. I had to read that four or five times. Because as soon as I read that first verse, God's like, well, are you? And then I continued. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. This is Paul speaking. Now that at last you have revived your concern for me, indeed, you were concerned before me, you lack, but you lacked the opportunity. In verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. This is Paul talking to his apostles, his disciples, the men and women that he reached out to and, and, and began to form the nugget that became the church of Philippi. And he was sharing from his heart about his own frustrations and trials. And you say, well, what in the world does he have to be complaining about? I mean, he is the most powerful apostle that's ever walked the earth, right? As far as we know. We have more writing from him than any other single uh, writer in the New Testament. We know more about the life of Paul than any of the other apostles. We know more about his life and his times. And you would think that he had everything he needed. He He was a world traveler. He was cosmopolitan. He knew how to work in the Greek world as well as the Jewish world. He could manage himself in the Roman world, and he was a man of means with a skill and ability that was in need and demand. He could go anywhere and work at any time and make a living. Many of us aren't so lucky. Well, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can see some of the things that Paul was proud of when it came to this sorts of thing. Paul says, 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm just going to start off in verse 16 because I think it brings it out. Remember now, I'm, I'm trying to track how Paul is handling this because this is what God is leading me through. He says, I repeat, let no man think, um, no one think me foolish. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little bit. What I am saying with this boastful what I'm saying with this boastful confidence I say not as the Lord would but as a fool since many boast according to the flesh I will boast as well for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face to my shame I must say we too we were too weak for that Remember, Paul's laying this out right in front of him. And I'm thinking, where is this going? Here's where it begins. He says, but whatever anyone else dares boast of, I am speaking as a fool here. I also dare to boast that. He says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak who is made to fall and I am not indignant therefore if I must boast I will boast of the things that show my weakness the God and Father Lord Jesus Christ who is, who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying even at Damascus the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me but I was let down the basket through the window in the wall and escaped his hands these are his words these are the struggles and trials that Paul were going through. Now you add that with the fact that he had this, this unknown thorn in the flesh that kept plaguing him constantly through his ministry. We know that he suffered even greater than what he mentioned here when you look at the full end of his life. And I wonder to myself, how? How can we move forward? How can we be what God wants us to be? And that led me to another writing of Paul's. In the book of Colossians, not that far from Philippians. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3. I guess I was mistaken when I said we weren't going to bounce too much. We're bouncing a little bit. Is that okay, Tom? Can I do that? All righty. Because you'd rather hear God's words than mine anyway. Because he's far more eloquent than I'll ever be. So, very good. And then I ask myself, well, you said I need to be filled. You say that, you say that I need to be grateful. You say that I need to be able to have this, this kind of thing. Where is this coming from? And I just read to you the list of the trials and tribulations that Paul had gone through. And I've read to you what he said to the Philippians, that he is in any circumstance, he's learned to be content and find a level of peace. I think he goes into greater detail. 
in chapter 3 in the book of Colossians, starting in the first verse. He says this, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's us, right? Keep seeking the things above. That's what he's telling me. Where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed in him in glory. Therefore, verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, with the amount, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I got that, God. I'm good with that. Most of the stuff on that list I'm pretty good with. I mean, there's a few minor areas, especially the, the area of desire and greed, and, and maybe there's a little bit of passion that shouldn't be there. And, and okay, well, I'm good with some of the things here. Well, no, God, I'm not good with any of these things. I'm a sinner. But thank you for saving me. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. Verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Okay. And in them, verse 7, and in them you also will once walked. Okay, I'm right there with you. And when I was living in them. Verse 8. But now you also are to put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abrasive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside your old self with its evil practices. And you have put on a new self who being renew, is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal which, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Okay. So also, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Here's where it gets to the, to the nuts and bolts, right? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He's referring to something that we had mentioned the other day. Remember I asked you a question, what it would look like? And we've all seen Hollywood's version of a, of a demon-possessed individual. What would it look like if a spirit, if the Holy Spirit-possessed individual were to be part of our midst? And you know, as soon as we say that, as Baptists, we, we automatically, our mind goes to the other denominations, you know, the, the, the ones that shall not be named, the ones that are out there that are a little odd and crazy, right? That, that you wonder, you say, well, how in the world they can be that? How can they bounce around? How can they say in the foreign twitch? That's not being spirit-filled. They would probably argue against that. But I'm here saying that, that if you want to know what a spirit-filled person looks like, if you want to know what a woman or a man would look like if they were spirit-filled, the Holy Spirit empowered, imbued, let's read right here. What does it say? It says, and we just read it. He says, those that were chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just forgive, he's saying. Just as the Lord forgave you, you also should. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, be thankful. Mm. Look what it says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. 
in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, that's pretty rich. So when, when I ask God, how do I get through this? How do, I, how do I get through this at the same time trying to lead some of you guys through this as well? How do I get through this when I'm, I don't even want to get out of bed in the morning? He says with a grateful heart. And I said, Lord, how can I pray with thanksgiving? And he says, I'll teach you. We'll do this step by step. We'll go slowly. But you have to start off by praising my name. Because he says, I know the plans I have for you. Because I'm crafting you and creating you into something that you would be amazed if you saw the end result right now. I don't like the methods, the chisels, and the tools that God uses. Because believe me, I've got a lot of rough edges. Ask anyone. Just don't ask my wife. She'll be very honest. I'm a hard person to live with. I know that. And I tell you, I think that that Casey ought to get an award for sainthood because I'm a hard person to work with as well. Um, and I know she struggles a lot, but she's a good woman. And I know God is chipping away slowly because he's crafting something that's much more beautiful than I can ever imagine. And I want to get to that place, but I don't want to walk the road. But he's told me I have to. And so when I look at this and I look at what Paul has to say, I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. I don't want to be a spirit-filled man that just runs around and, and sings and yells and screams and maybe speaks in a language that, that you don't understand. I mean, I could do that. I know a little French, right? Some of you guys don't know French. I could do that, but I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's what a spirit-filled person looks like. A spirit-filled person, according to what Paul is saying, is one that has, that has a heart of passion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another, forgiving one another, moving as God has called us to move, in perfect harmony, a bond of unity, seeking to draw people to me, not push people away from me. And through it all, giving praise and thanks in any circumstance, good or bad. You know, it's really easy to sit in the puddle of my own sin and be really grateful and thanks, thankful and, and sing praises of thanks to Jesus Christ for forgiving me of my sin. That's pretty easy. What's not so easy is when I'm drowning in grief and loss and suffering. And it's at that point that I need to be grateful and praise. It's a big difference. And I think this is where we are this morning. And you say, well, you've read from Paul and you've read Paul's journeys. What does Jesus say about this? If you turn to Luke chapter 14 before we get into Isaiah 61, you say, well, Pastor, you only got nine minutes left. You better hurry. Okay, I will. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) See, in Luke chapter 14, Luke's having a discussion, or Luke's recording the discussion that Jesus is having with the crowds. He's talking to the people that are following him. He turns to his disciples. In Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, he says, Now large crowds were going, with him, going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, The large crowds that were with him, all the people that were following behind him, that were looking for that next miracle, looking for that next thing that was coming out of him. Some of them have all had their images of what this Messiah was supposed to be. And he turns around to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Oh, God, why did you do that to me? 
That doesn't seem right, does it? I knew a fellow that was going through a similar situation that I'm going through, and he said to me once, and after it was over with, he stopped going to church and really blamed God for a lot of things, and we can have a lot of discussion about his salvation, and I don't know if he's saved, to be honest with you. But he said to me, he says, the reason why I left the church was because he was under the impression that the righteous should be rewarded. That was his phrase. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I, I've had a few classes on theology, right? I've had a few discussions in Scripture. I've read a few passages, not them all, that I can remember. I mean, I've gone through the Bible once or twice, but I don't remember reading anywhere where it says the righteous should be rewarded. But maybe it's one of those obscure, you know, second opinions, chapter 3 kind of thing. I'm not really sure. But he said to me, the righteous should be rewarded. This is not a reward. I'm thinking to myself, well, first of all, reward and, and not reward is not really up to us to decide, is it? Because we don't see the end result. We only see the here and now. I mean, if your kids come to you and they expect a reward and you give them a candy bar, they'll probably be pretty happy. What they won't be happy with is the hours of dental cleaning and work they're going to have later in life because you decide to give them a piece of candy rather than give them a real reward. And so maybe a real reward in your mind is a stick of, you know, sugar-free chewing gum or maybe a carrot. That doesn't do well with the kids, right? But sometimes we have to see outside of ourselves. This is what he says. You cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, he goes on and says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Do you hear what he's calling those people to? He's not calling them to an easy job, right? He's calling them to death. He's calling them to give up every single thing that would ever tie them to their life and asking them to follow him in a place that they have no understanding of what they're going to do. It's a pretty scary place. I can't even begin to imagine what it was like for the first century hearers to hear this when crosses were still in fashion and people were dying on them pretty regularly. He goes on to talk about houses and building and counting the costs. And the thing is, and this is something I don't know if any of us do, in this modern age, and this is the one gripe I have with the Baptist life, I love being a Baptist, don't get me wrong. I love most everything about being a Baptist. What I don't like about being a Baptist is the easy believism that we've put out there. That we've told people, if you just say this prayer and you, and you can be saved... And I can't count the number of people in my early ministry where I led them to this place in this emotional settings where I, where I manipulated their, eyes, their ideas, their thoughts, and their emotions and brought them to a place where they felt like they had to say that prayer or they, weren't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to go any further. Now you say, well, that's a good thing, Pastor. You, you've, I remember one, one youth camp, I, I had a revolving door. I brought 75 kids to youth camp and over 35 of them got saved. You say, well, that's fantastic. Well, let's think about this for a second. Because after we got back home, away from the, 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 the enforced isolation from the world, 75 kids evaporated, and I was back down to my 20 normal kids, and none of them said that prayer. None of those kids that said the prayer got baptized. As far as I know, none of those kids are in the church today. And I asked myself, was I doing them justice, or did I just give them a false understanding of salvation? Did they walk away from that retreat thinking, my fire insurance is in order, I guess I'm good. 
And they went on to live their life any way they pleased with no change, no real Holy Spirit empowering them, and no real foundation for them to stand on. Where does it say in Scripture that we're supposed to lead them through a prayer? Are we told to make disciples? Are we told to bring people in a loving way as we live life beside them and draw them closer and closer to the image of Christ? That's what we're called to do. And I think to myself, there's so much more. And I wonder if any of us here, when we first sat down and said, I am going to give my heart and soul to you, God, how many of us actually counted the real cost? Think about it. Because everybody sitting in here, you know at least one person that did exactly what you guys did. Said the prayer, came to church, sang the songs, felt like you were done, got wet in the baptistry, came out of it a new person for a little while. But everybody in here knows at least one person that is not in church today and is not living for God today. What is different about them and about you? Was the prayer that they said any less powerful? Makes you wonder. I think we make it too easy because we don't tell them what Jesus said here. Whoever wants to come after me and be my disciple has to forsake everything and pick up his own cross and carry it. And he says to count the cost before you begin. I can honestly say this, I've counted the cost and I've looked at my life. And I know that I've had some trials and tribulations and this is the area that I'm trying to find that space where I can, where I can praise God even in the midst of this tragedy. And I'm asking myself, how can I do this? And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is how you do it. You recognize the greater is he that is in me that is in this world. And I would rather be standing here or even sitting there doing nothing for God but at least being on his team than living out there in the world apart from his plan and his path, apart from his blessings and his protection. And and somebody was arguing, well, if this is what God's protection looks like, it looks like kind of weak protection. But again, we're looking at it with the eyes of a child. We don't see what he sees. I can only say that the end results can be more beautiful than the beginning. And that's what Paul was trying to say. That's what Jesus was trying to say. He's looking for disciples that have counted the cost and choose to follow him still. At the end of that discussion, he turns to his disciples, Peter and James and John, and he looks them in the eye. And these guys, they had had good days and bad days, Peter especially. A lot lot more bad days sometimes that we have in Scripture than good days on Peter's part. But I remember Peter sitting there, and this is one of those good days, because Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, what about you guys? Are you going to leave too? Because after he said this to these people, the Bible records that that many of them turned back from following him. They stopped following him. And And this is like the worst thing you can do, right, to grow a church. You don't tell people to leave. But that's what he did. And he turns to Peter and Paul, and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to leave me too? Peter had a good day. Peter turned to him, looking right in the eye. At least that's my impression. I don't think he was looking at his feet when he said it. I think he looked at Jesus right in the eye and he said, why would I do that, Jesus? You're the one that has the words of life. You're the one that has eternal eternal destiny bearing words that's going to change the very nature of the universe. How can I possibly follow that has more to offer me than you? That's what he said. 
Well, I'm paraphrasing. I think it was a good paraphrase. And so if Peter, James, and John can praise the Lord through trials and tribulations, what about, what about Peter, James, and John? Did they? I think they did. I'm not going to turn there, but you remember the passage in Acts? When they were preaching and teaching in the temple after Jesus had died, after he'd been buried, after he had risen, after he had descended into the heaven, and now they're in the temple, the Holy Spirit has already descended upon them. They're now filled with the Spirit of God. They're seeing the church grow. They're in the temple. They're praising. They're worshiping. They're, they're doing everything that God wants them to do. And what happens? The church says, I don't think so. Why don't you come step in this little room? We're going to lock you away. They were examined. They were tested. They were beaten. And they were told to leave the temple, and never speak the name of Jesus Christ again. And you would think that after being beaten a few times and in prison that they would probably listen. But no, Peter, James, and John, they left that room praising the name of God for the beatings. And they didn't stop. They didn't stop. See, that's the other thing I read from Scripture here. It says, never stop. Never stop doing what you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. Never stop giving thanks through him to God the Father. And that led, that led me to the last passage we're going to go to. I'm not saying in conclusion, so don't put that on the board because we're not yet ready to conclude. But if you want to turn over to Isaiah chapter 61, this will be the last passage I think that I'm going to go to. Isaiah chapter 61. I'll be honest, it wasn't until about Thursday morning that God finally revealed this passage to me. And you know, it's a passage I know pretty well, but it was a passage I needed to know again. We come across a song, one of the few songs that are in the, New Test- the Old Testament that, um, that, that are part of the Isaiah's ministry, songs that were messianic in nature. This was the very psalm song passage that Jesus preached out of when he had the opportunity to preach in his home church right before they tried to stone him. This is what he said. He said, The Spirit of the Lord, the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. I stop there for a second. That's verse one. You ask any preacher that's ever stood in the pulpit, and you ask them why they got in there. After they get finished telling you how the Lord called them into it and in some, some cases pressed them into service, every single one of them would come back and say, this is why we do it. This is why I want to preach. This is why I want to spare the good news of God because I want to bring the good news to the afflicted. I want to bind up the brokenhearted. I want to proclaim liberty to the captives. I want to help set the, freedom, set the prisoners free. This is what I'm searching for. This is the ministry that I want God to do through me. He starts off right in the beginning. As Isaiah is writing this, he says, Lord God. In the New American Standard, or New International Version, it said, uh, Sovereign Lord. I kind of like that a little bit better because the word Lord God brings out the full, it brings out the words, but it doesn't bring out the fullness of it. Sovereign God, I think, is better. Adonai Yahweh is the word that's used here. And God is trying to bring out the idea that he is sovereign, he is God, he is Lord, creator of the universe. And nothing happens without his permission. He goes on to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to confront all who mourn. Sorry, to comfort, not to confront. 
to comfort all who mourn. I ask myself, Lord, is this what you're doing for me? And of course, I can't break free of my mind. I look for tangents. I look for, I look for, I look for connections. And, I, and I, as soon as I'm reading this, and I said that he is the day of, and the day of the vengeance of our God, I got that. And to comfort all who mourn, I can hear an echo from the lips of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn, for they'll be comforted. Hmm. Verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, given them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then they will rebuild ancient ruins. They will raise up former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. This is a pretty powerful passage. Now it goes on. You can read all the way down to the end of the chapter, and I, and I would love to do that. And honestly, I think there is a lot to be learned in this, but I think the, the bulk of what we want to learn is right here in the beginning. And I would encourage you the rest of this week to open up Isaiah 61 and see how the Lord is leading you through this. Oftentimes we see in prophecy, there's, there's usually a threefold stages in the prophecies. Usually you see it, and to use a, a plant analogy, you see a bud, a flower, and then the full fruit that's formed. And we see that a lot of times in, in Isaiah. We see in Isaiah 42, the Bible talks about God providing a Messiah. In verse 53, it talks about God being pleased when the Messiah is suffering. And now we get into Isaiah 61, and we see the purpose of the Messiah to come and to suffer and to do what he has been called to do, to be that suffering servant, brings us to a place where he can show us what it means to have good news. Because let me tell you something, you can't bring good news to someone if you don't know what the bad news is all about. You really can't. It always makes me chuckle when we have some of the other denominations out there that take 18-year-old kids and call them elders. I won't name the denomination, but you know what I'm talking about. How can an 18-year-old be an elder of a church? When I think of an elder, I think of my brother Gary. And I, I know some of you may have thought that I was picking on him, saying that he was my hero, but, but really, in many ways, he is. And I'm not joking at all. He's a godly man, and I love him to death. And I tell you, I would take his wisdom over an 18-year-old kid that's never lived a day in life, any day of the week. Because I know he knows what it means to be up, and to be down. You know, many of you know that my daughter's getting married. I don't know how to handle this. So I go, I go, to, I go to the men in the church that have had daughters, that have, have been able to successfully give them away. And I ask, what do I do? Because I don't know. It's hard. Because this is where we are when we're looking for guidance. He wants to comfort us when we mourn. He wants us to be able to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. You know, when you look at that passage in verse 1 where it says the freedom to the prisoners, that word there, it's actually a funny little Hebrew word. If you were to translate, literate it into English, it's literally P-Q-A-H, okay? I have no idea how to pronounce that. It literally means open the eyes of, to reveal an individual from darkness to light, so we're talking about freedom to prisoners. It's more than just opening the door and saying, there you go, the exit to prison is here. It's allowing them to have their eyes open for the first time in the light and the love of God. 
But look what he says here. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Many of you are familiar with other versions where it talk about beauty instead of ashes. But you know, in order to get the beauty instead of ashes, it requires an overthrow of everything that stands in the way. And that's much of what I said to the kids this morning when I showed them the block of wood and the finished bowl. We all like the finished bowl, but the block of wood is hard to get to. And let me tell you something. If you've never turned wood on a lathe, I know Tom and I have done it once, right? It's not easy. And you start off with this chunk of wood, and it's not forgiving. And it doesn't want to be shaped. And it fights you every chance you get. And when you first turn that lathe on, and you first turn that dial, it's a speed, a speed selector. And you can't, I mean, everybody wants to jump full speed, jump it right up to the top, and just let it start spinning. Let me tell you, you do that, you will hurt yourself. You can't do that. Because that block of wood does not want to be a bowl. At least it doesn't think it does, right? And I remember, I have this little tiny lathe. It's about yay big. It sits on the, on the bench. And when I put that, that block of wood on there and I start spinning around, that thing starts bouncing around. Sometimes I wish I had a third arm because I'd love to be able to just take that third arm, slip it on top of that lathe so I can hold it down so I can get that thing to the point where it's starting to be round. It's amazing when it starts to trim down, though, and you start to get those big chips off, and you finally start seeing it come into view. It's the most amazing thing. You know, Sandy asks me all the time, what are you going to make that out of? And I'm like, I never know, right? I take the block of wood, I put it in there, and I never know what's going to come out on the other end because I don't know what the wood is going to supposed to be. I only know that there's something inside that block of wood that is beautiful that's waiting to come out. And I just start chipping away until it reveals itself. That's what God's doing for us. It's hard to be that block of wood that's spinning, not knowing where it's going to be. And I'd love to be able to tell you I have all the answers. I really do. I'd love to be able to tell you that I know exactly what God is leading. But I know this. I know this, that the evidence of a spirit-filled life is somebody who seeks that, that patience, that kindness, that goodness, that forgiveness. A person that seeks to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not so he can hold that into himself and say, this is mine, I'm not letting go. It's so that I can give it out to those that need it. We're all hurting. Some of you knew my nephew more than others. Some of you know me and my family fairly well. And by extension, you're hurting with us. The one thing that I'm excited about, the one thing that I'm thrilled about, and the one thing I hope that you didn't take away negatively from last week's sermon, I do feel that you are a very loving and beautiful congregation. And I know it may have seemed last week like I was saying that you weren't loving, because I know, Mike, you're not very loving sometimes. And I get that, because you're a guy, right? And we've talked about that. We can all be unloving at times. But the reality is, the reality is that my family has never felt more loved or welcome than we have in the recent weeks. It's sad that it takes the death of someone so close to bring this out. It's sad when tragedy has to do that, but the thing that we're trying to come out here is this, is that we are the body of Christ. And whether we show up here every single Sunday or not, whether we're singing on the stage with Phil or not, whether we're teaching a Sunday school sermon or not, or whether we're just seeking to be his light in this dark world, we are all part of the body. And I can tell you this, I may not have all the answers, but I know God does. And it begins with this, we praise. We praise in the good times and the bad. And I'm gonna make this commitment to you guys. When the bad times come, and they have, 
And I'd love to be able to say, that's it, we're done, God, right? Everything else is going to be easy from here, right? The rest of my Christian walk is going to be a piece of cake, right? And at the end of it, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna call it all good and done, and I'm going to step out of this life into, the, into heaven, and you're going to look at me and say, man, that was a rough one back in uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, right? And I'm like, yeah, it was a little rough. And he goes, well, good thing you didn't have anything tougher after that, right? He's not going to say that to me. Now, we're not going to rem- reminisce and commiserate about that. We're going to look me in the eye, and, he's, and I know this because I know my Lord and Savior because he's, he loves me with his intensity and all of his heart and soul. He's going to look me in the eye, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. At least that's my fervent hope and prayer, and I'm going to work my entire life so that I hear those words from the lips of my Savior because I don't want to get in by the skin of my teeth. Amen. I don't want to be one of those people that barely make it into heaven. I want to be one of those people that God embraces and says, I'm so glad you're here. What did Paul say? Paul says, to die would be gain, but to live is Christ. I know why we're here. I may not all know all the reasons that God is doing in things in my life, and I don't understand all the chips that are flying, but I know he has a plan for me, and I have to praise him. I have to praise him, because what is the alternative? When I read the words that he is my sovereign Lord, sovereign means something. You know, in this day and age, we don't, we don't have any trust in our leaders. We really don't. From White House to House of Representatives all the way down to local government here in Kenai. I like the mayor. He's a nice guy. But I like the last mayor, and she allowed pot distributors in town. You know, liking a person is different than trusting them. Our leadership may not always be what we want it to be. But our ultimate leadership is Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to praise him in the good times and the bad. So I encourage you in these times now with me, as you know we're going through this, I encourage you to praise with me. Praise the Lord for all of our blessings and our trials. Because I know he has a plan. That being said, I'm going to give you a couple passages of Scripture, and this will be in conclusion. You write that on the board, okay? I'm not turning there, but I want you to read these this week because it'll lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about next week. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses verse 10, or 9 and 10, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9, God's talking about our duties and responsibilities as part of the body of Christ. And I encourage you, as I give you a little snippet, a little taste of what's going to be next week, I encourage you to think about it because the goal really is for us to have that supernatural body of Christ that reaches out and beyond us. And what does that one body really look like? It begins with us being filled with the Holy Spirit, praising Him for every step of the journey and seeing where He takes us. If you're sitting there today and you've said, Pastor, I've had trials and tribulations that you don't understand, I would say you're probably right. Just like I have trials and tribulations that many of you don't understand. But I know that God does. The Bible says that there's nothing that, he is, that we've gone through that he hasn't already understood and experienced. From the death of a close friend to death on the cross himself. And I can promise you this, whatever you're feeling, wherever you're at, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, he understands where you're at. And he's willing to offer salvation to you. Not through saying a simple prayer and walking away unchanged, but if you count the cost and recognize that being a disciple of Christ means more than anything else you've ever done in your life, then I encourage you to come down front.
You say, Pastor, you can't do that. You can't tell people not to come. Well, I think Jesus did, right? Because I think what the world needs is not more people that call themselves Christians, but we need more disciples that really are. And I think First Church here in Kenai ought to be about the business of making real disciples. Ones that are ready to charge the breach when the king says, run. Ones that are willing to endure the suffering, the pain for a little while, knowing that our path in heaven is going to be so much better. Scripture tells us that in the end, there are going to be tears, and all the tears will be wiped away. Can't wipe away tears that aren't there. We're all going to have them. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, don't leave here today without getting your heart right. Those of us that know him and know him well, those of us that may be struggling or seeking a a pathway forward, just want a second touch. Or maybe you just want to bring a burden, lay it down before the Lord. This altar is beautiful, it's pretty. I love the way that they've decorated it. But it's still a big altar. And I'm pretty sure it can meet all of our needs. Wherever you are with the Lord today, if he's drawing you to come down front during the time of invitation, I encourage you to come. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be here. Lord, we know that not every one of us are exactly where you want us right now. But Lord, we know a lot of us are growing closer every day. Father, as you continue to chip off and straighten us up, as you, kind of, as you continue to form us into the piece of art that bears the image of your living son, Father, I ask that you continue to guide us and direct us. Give us strength when we need strength. Lift us up when we're falling. Allow us in our weakness to turn to you in your strength, that your son might be magnified and that his strength might be glorified and that all other men that stand around and look at what's happening to us will have no other choice but to turn their eyes to your son in recognition of what he's doing in our lives. Lord, we just put all of our concerns into your hands. We thank you for the blessings of the week past, and we look forward to the blessings to give you even greater thanks and praise in the week to come. Lord, if there's anyone in here please, that doesn't know you, please don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. We ask this now in the name of your son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Phil.